0: Well, tonight I'm going to begin a a brief sermon mini series on uh, several events uh, from the Elisha narrative. About seven, maybe eight years ago, uh, I visited several episodes in in the Elisha narrative. Uh, But just recently, I've begun work uh, on a book for a series of uh, uh, books that are written about the gospel uh, as it's communicated in the Old Testament. And my particular work focuses on the gospel in the life of the Shunammite woman, this woman uh, whose um, life and and struggle and God's providence in her life shows up several times uh, in the book of 2 Kings, beginning in 2 Kings chapter 4. And so I thought I would, would um, do a little bit more work on some of that and repackage it and and revise some of the things I've done in the in the past and, uh, and preach a mini-series on uh, the gospel in the life of the Shunammite woman. So we're going to start that tonight and hopefully finish it uh, by the end of November, uh, be preaching those sermons in the evening uh, for our worship. But if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 4, we find the first uh, episode, as it were, uh, in the narrative of the life of the Shunammite woman connected with the ministry, the gospel ministry Uh, Of Elisha the prophet. We'll be reading uh, verses 8 through 17 tonight and focusing on those verses. This is God's holy word beginning at, at verse 8. One day Elisha went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God, who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls, and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, "'Say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army?' She answered, "'I dwell among my own people.' And he said, "'What then is to be done for her?' Gehazi answered, "'Well, she has no son, and her husband is old.' He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant, but the woman conceived. And she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. We're going to end our reading of God's Word there, but we will turn to a few other passages tonight, so please keep your thumb there in that passage of 2 Kings chapter 4. I just love that story. I just love that story. Maybe uh, if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, you've had a little child sitting on your knee at some point or another, and they look up to you with a beaming face, smile, and say, Mom, Dad, Grandma, Grandpa, I just love that story. Scotland can't say those words quite yet, but after I've read a certain book five or six times, I've gathered that that's a story that she loves. It's a favorite of hers. And that's not surprising because stories are powerful. Stories uh, have the ability to grab our attention. They can excite our imaginations. They move our emotions in in deep and lasting ways. And stories are powerful because they often teach uh, moral lessons, lasting, uh, valuable lessons. And so it's not surprising that nearly all of us have a favorite story that we like to read or tell but of course we all know that stories can be made up they can be imaginary they can be tall tales and not really have any connection to reality or history that's why sometimes I have to admit I cringe uh, when I hear people say I love that story and they're referring not to a popular novel or a favorite child's tale but to an account in the Bible Uh, because We need to remember that all of what is written here in Scripture, even these accounts of the lives of individuals who have lived in the past, they're not fanciful tales written by men and women to teach universal truths. These are historical records. These are God-breathed, inspired, and inscripturated accounts of God's intervention In the lives of his church. And and so it's important for us as we meditate on accounts like these to remember that that they don't teach us so much about ourselves first and foremost. They're here to teach us about the God of history. They're here to teach us about his character, uh, about his providence, about his commandments. And so with that in mind, as is sort of a foundation for our study of the Old Testament narratives. Uh, during the next couple sermons, the next two to three sermons, we're going to look at some events uh, in the life and the ministry of the prophet Elisha, especially as he interacts with this Shunammite woman, the Shunammite lady, uh, whose life is recorded here in 2 Kings. Now perhaps as I read this passage, you, you said to yourself, I don't remember ever reading about the Shunammite woman. Uh, she's maybe not on our, our radar on regular occasion. And in fact, we don't know a great deal about her. Um, even the account before us tells us the basic facts. She's from Shunem, uh, part of a land of the Promised Land that was allotted for those who belonged to the tribe of Issachar. She lives in a town, Shunem, that is located southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we learn that she's married And she's described as a a great woman, a woman of some influence, some wealth and prosperity. And yet what maybe might surprise us is that in the whole narrative of Elisha's prophetic ministry, the Shunammite woman pops up no less than three times. Uh, Three separate events are recorded here for our instruction. And because the Bible is useful for our instruction in righteousness and in holiness, these accounts have much to teach us about our call to obedience, to submit to God's word, uh, but also they're here to teach us about God and His perfect providence for us. This first account that I just read, and that we're going to look at tonight, holds up the Shunammite woman before us uh, as a hospitable woman. Uh, as an example to us of faithfulness before God. And we read that there's a gracious reward. There's a fruitful life that is awaiting us when we give ourselves over, when we give our hearts to the total claim of God's Word. But this passage is here uh, primarily to teach us about the character of God, whose mercy always drives us to worship Him, to praise Him, For our gracious salvation in Jesus Christ. The first thing we want to note together is this woman's great profession of faith. When I was a a seminary student studying in the Midwest, very often, almost every weekend, sometimes I'd be asked to go fill a pulpit in a local church. Sometimes I'd have to travel to Michigan, sometimes it was more local, uh, close to the seminary. But uh, every time I, I went away, I was assigned a host family. I didn't know who they were until I met them for the first time, usually on a Saturday night when I drove over to uh, spend the evening and then preach the next day. And I was to be hosted by them the entire Sunday that I was there filling the pulpit. And that was such an encouragement to me, to know I had a comfortable room that I could lay down in to take a nap, that I could get a full uh, home-cooked meal uh, to fuel me for preaching that day. It was, enc- it was a comfort, it was an encouragement for me to have that place and that hospitality. Well, the Shunammite here in Second Kings 4 is, is highlighted for her Hospitality. Because she's a great blessing to Elisha, prophet of the Lord, who is an itinerant preacher, who is going from town to town in Israel to to call God's people to repent of their sin and to once again turn to the Lord for renewal. And we read that this this Shunammite woman and her husband uh, have a room prepared, built, Uh, for Elisha and Gehazi to to rest in, to eat in, every time they come to town. This woman is a a top-rate host. Uh, She's going above and beyond what she would be otherwise called to do. Certainly, she had a flat roof upon which she could have simply uh, offered uh, that space to Gehazi and Elisha to lay down their mats and sleep on on a cool evening. But She goes above and beyond the call to duty and builds a room for him. We might be tempted to attribute her kindness uh, simply to good old-fashioned, ancient Near Eastern hospitality, but notice what we read here in the narrative in verse 9. What are her motives for providing this wonderful space for Elisha here? She says to her husband in verse 9, Behold now I know that this is a holy man of God. She is not just hospitable. She is spiritually wise. The Shunammite woman has been given spiritual discernment to notice, to recognize that Elisha is a holy man of God. He's a good prophet. He's a faithful representative of God in Israel. And she knows something about those days in Israel. She knows that the Word of God is not highly regarded, highly esteemed in Israel in these days. These days were days of apostasy, days of wickedness among the people of Israel. But she stands out as a woman of faith. She knows that What Israel needs most is to hear God's word. That Israel needs to return to obedience to that word. And so she wants to contribute to the cause of the ministry of Elisha. She's not ashamed. She acts against popular opinion. She makes a public statement of faith among her neighbors by honoring God's prophet, who is the bearer of the gospel. She honors him as a distinguished guest. This is a great and public act of faith, and it's motivated by her love for God and her desire to see that word of God honored again in Israel. Well, Elisha recognizes this. He sees that her care for him is is born of her faith in God, her commitment to God's word, and so he wants to bless her in some way, and he asks Gehazi, What does she need? Certainly there's something that she needs. He offers her benefits through his patronage. Perhaps he can put a good word in for her to the king or the commander of the army, the two most powerful people in Israel in the day. And yet she says, no, I have no assistance needed. She's a great woman. She has some social stature. She lives among her own people. She can count on them to care for her. She's well off. She's not looking for any return for her kindness. And so the woman of Shunem uh, is presented to us, first of all, as a woman of great faith. Her support of Elisha and his ministry is a genuine, a public act of faith born out of her love for God and His Word. She's exemplary, exemplary for us. It's the first thing we ought to note. She knows what is most needed in the days of wickedness and that is that people need the Lord. They need to return to His Word. She knows that in these days of wickedness, what is most important is for her to support God's Word, to support the ministry of that Word. This evening, it's important for us to ask ourselves, what is most important in our lives? In these days of wickedness, in which many people have turned away from God and His truth, What do we prioritize? Is it our entertainment? Is it our comfort? Is it our ease? Or do we promote and do we support most of all the ministry of God's Word, which is needed most of all to bring our world back to God? And yet, we wonder, does this woman have no longings at all? No heartfelt needs? anything she desires. As we continue to read the narrative, we learn that, in fact, she does have a heartfelt desire. Gehazi, Elisha's servant, perceives that this woman still lacks something important. She lacks a son, and her husband is old. And so Elisha calls her back in the room, and he makes this this wonderful prophecy he says, at the appointed time, a year from now, you will embrace a son. And now it's the Shunammites' turn to be surprised at the generosity shown to her. But she's wary of Elisha's prophecy. She's wary. Please, man of God, she says, don't deceive me. And I think we're, we're meant to read her response to Elisha, not as an exclamation of disbelief, as if she didn't believe that Elisha could truly fulfill uh, his prophecy. It's not like Sarah, who laughed when the angel said, you will have a son. It's a response of fear, of hesitation, uh, desperately not wanting to be disappointed again. It's important for us to put ourselves in the Shunammite's shoes or sandals. Think of the hidden sorrow that she carried for all of her life. Consider the reproach of barrenness during this time in history. During this time, there was a great desire, there was a cultural pressure to give birth, not just to children, but to a male child as an heir. The rights of inheritance were followed along the male line. And and it was the male lineage that that, uh, perpetuated the family name in Israel. And she knows that. She knows the reproach of her barrenness. And that, in fact, tells us something about her faith, doesn't it? That despite her barrenness, despite the heaviness of her heart, despite the mysterious providence of God in her life that has led her up to this point... to to live under the, the curse of her barrenness, she still is content to serve the Lord in faith. She has a genuine love for the Word of God despite her silent suffering, her reproach among the rest of the people of Israel. She believes and she obeys even under the mysterious and difficult providence of God. How do we believe under suffering? It's often been said that the the test of a Christian is is how well they live, how well they love God in the midst of difficult times. In the case of this Shunammite, she believes she obeys even in the midst of her reproach. And despite her reservations, despite the the, the internal fear that she has that, that this won't come about, we're told the miracle does happen. Verse 17, we learn that the woman conceived, she bore a son, just as Elisha spoke. Everything happened exactly according to the word of God. We're reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 41. The one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And to really grasp how great this reward truly is, We have to notice an important detail in this passage. In verse 16, we read about the fulfillment of this promise, this prophecy to the woman. And this is how the the, the promise is said, or or this is the, the format in which it's spoken. And he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. We read That sort of promise in that form only one other time in the pages of Scripture. And we find it in Genesis chapter 18 where Sarah is promised that she will have a child in her old age. And of course she laughs at that promise. And how does the Lord respond? He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, he says, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. This clear parallel of language brings to mind a pattern that we find in the Old Testament and in the New the barren woman pattern. Think of all the women. Mentioned in Scripture, who were for a time barren, childless, and cried out to the Lord in the midst of their suffering, Lord, meet my need, meet my desire. We think of Sarah and the giving of Isaac, Rebecca and the giving of the twins, Rachel and the gift of Joseph, Manoah's wife, Hannah, who prayed and prayed for a son and was given Samuel. And we think of Elizabeth, who was blessed with John the Baptist. The Shunammites' case follows right along in line with this barren woman pattern where the Lord raises up barren women and gives them sons. And yet the case of the Shunammite woman is so ordinary compared to these other cases. In the other cases, God reversed the barrenness of women who would raise a son who would be a great leader in Israel or would raise sons who would have a a genealogical link to our Lord Jesus Christ. But this little boy born to the Shunammite doesn't appear to occupy a special place in the kingdom of God. His birth isn't uh, necessary, as far as we can tell, to the course of redemptive history. We don't even know his name. He probably grew up to carry on the family name, maybe work the family farm. Why does God privilege this woman? by giving her a son in her barrenness. Well, we could conclude, of course, simply that God loves to give good gifts to His people, that His providence comes to ordinary people, and that certainly is true. But I think there's more here for us to notice in God blessing this barren, once barren woman with a child, that we need to think more deeply about what barrenness symbolized For the people of God because in the Bible, fruitful land, fertile women, women who could bear children and sons, that represented the blessed life that God intended from the very beginning for His creation. Well the polar opposite of this, a desolate fruitless land, barren women who cannot bear children are biblical pictures of the consequences of sin and the curse. And the prophets of old used to use the imagery of barrenness to prosecute God's people for their sin and disobedience to the covenant. Barrenness was used to describe the condition of a sinner's heart, separate from God, fruitless, lifeless. And yet in Isaiah's prophecy, we receive this wonderful news that God intends to redeem His people and reverse their barrenness. God is going to restore the blessed life that He intends for His creation by reversing the curse, by taking away the barrenness of the land and of its women and of their souls. In that great day of restoration about which Isaiah prophesies, the desolate land will blossom abundantly. Read in Isaiah uh, 35, for example, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert." The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. God prophesies that on the day of of restoring all that has been broken and lost, the desolate land will blossom, and barren women will also receive God's blessing and will sing and rejoice in their new fertility. In Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 8, I'll just read verse 1. We read this, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Bring forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. How is that restoration that newness of life, the reversal of the curse, how does that come about? Well, at the appointed time, Jesus Christ came to earth. And he spoke of himself as the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. He came into the temple, recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. And what was handed to him? The scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he unrolled it, and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he sat down, And he said today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus Christ fulfills God's plan to renew, to restore sinful humanity from the desolation, the barrenness of sin. And even his own human lineage can be traced from barren women to unlikely births, from barren Sarah Adulteress adulterous Rahab, to the virgin mother Mary. You see, this Shunammite woman's reward for her faithfulness, the reversal of her barrenness, the gift of a son, it's a picture of the gospel. It's part and parcel of what God is doing right now through the history of redemption to transform barrenness and lack of fertility into A fruitful and everlasting life. This miracle is a testimony of Jesus Christ's future work to restore the barren soul, to heal the brokenness of creation. And so in this way the Shunammite and her son occupy a very important place in the history of redemption, as do all of us, who by faith in Jesus Christ know and grasp the promise of a blessed and future life as we diligently submit to God's Word, as we wait patiently upon His perfect providence in our lives. But we need to notice one more detail in this passage. In verse 17, we read that the woman, though she uh, was concerned about Elisha's prophecy, she, in fact, conceived, just as Elisha said. She bore a son about that time, the following spring, just as Elisha had said to her. Things happened just as Elisha said, because he spoke the truth. He spoke the word of God. But we can be sure that the fulfillment of Elisha's prophecy in the life of this woman did not happen in a quiet corner somewhere where no one else noticed. It is likely that most of Israel heard about what happened for this woman. Just as her profession of faith and her commitment to God's word was a public thing done in the sight of everyone, so this gracious reward of a son would have been noticed by all. God's word came true in her life in in a marvelous, in a public way. Very likely many in Israel came and, and joined with her in rejoicing that her barrenness was overcome in this miraculous way. This was meant to be not just a private lesson for the Shunammite woman. This was meant to be a public lesson for the entire people of Israel to see, for them to learn, even for those who had despised God's Word. And the lesson was this that only if they return to the obedience of God's Word and honor it and proclaim it, only then will there be a future for them. This passage holds up the Shunammite as an example for all of Israel, that the blessedness and the fruitfulness that God intends for us requires submission to God's Word and to those who proclaim it. And by extension, the the Shunammite is held up before us as an example, as we toil for the Lord in our day and age. And there are at least a couple lessons I think we should learn from her account. The first is simply this that we are taught that God's Word claims us in our lives entirely, God's Word claims our time. And our interests and our talents and our attention. It shows us the path of a truly blessed and fruitful life. God's Word here calls us to give our hearts to this Word more than to any other type of activity in which we are involved. After all, what sort of future awaits us if our work Our business completely absorbs our time and our energy, and God's Word is neglected as a result. What sort of future is there for us when our cozy family life and our hobbies and our sports activities have our exclusive attention after our daily work is done, but our love for God's Word is not cultivated but neglected? This passage teaches us that we are responsible We're responsible. We will have to answer to our covenant God for what we do with our interests and time and talents and money, whether in all of these things our hearts have desired and remain committed to the Word of God above all. Have we supported the ministry of God's Word in a manner worthy of God? Have we in all of our activities sought to become fellow workers of the ministry of His truth. That's the call, that's the challenge of this passage. But this passage doesn't just hold up the Shunammite woman as an example uh, for our call to obedience. This account, like all of Scripture, puts God at the, the forefront, front and center of our attention. We're meant to come away from this account amazed at the saving power of God in the lives of His people. The Word of God promises a bright and a fruitful future to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who put their trust in His Word of promise, a Word of redemption, of mercy and grace. It's the Word that preaches the wondrous goodness of the Lord who wants to save that which is lost and to restore to life, to its original beauty, uh, all things, and even better than that. The barren woman theme in the Bible, so clearly displayed here in the life of the Shunammite woman, teaches us that God's will is to restore the barrenness of this world and the barrenness of our souls and to make us fruitful servants in His kingdom. And so if we remain faithful to Him, if we seek all things from His hand, trusting Him in faith. If we support His gospel in various practical ways, in faith that His word will prevail, if we remain obedient, even when our hearts are aching because of the barrenness that sometimes accompanies life as we labor under the effects of the curse of sin, if we remain faithful, serving and loving and trusting His promises, God promises without fail that He will meet our needs. He will reward our small acts of faith and obedience from His bountiful store of pure grace. He is a God who delights to make His children happy. We have this absolute promise that He will make our lives fruitful now as we serve Him, even as we anticipate the day that is still to come when the new heavens and the earth will overcome all the barrenness and deadly nature of sin that decays our life now. We see in Revelation 21 and 22 a beautiful picture of God, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, making all things new, bringing prosperity and fruitfulness to this world. A world that we will inherit where there is no sign of decay. A picture of of fruitfulness and life, not barrenness, where no tears, no miscarriage, no human sin can disrupt the perfect life that Jesus Christ has secured for us. And so let us all cherish in our hearts this word of promise. Let us promote and spread this marvelous word of God even more than we are doing now, because in doing so, there is great present and everlasting reward, and eternal comfort, life abundant in the presence of our great God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for these small accounts that we find throughout your word. Remind us that you are a faithful, covenant-keeping God. You are a God who delights to give good gifts to your people. You you enjoy ruling over our lives in such a way that all things come to us not by chance, but by your fatherly hand. We thank you for your grace shown in the life of the Shunammite woman, a woman who, um, even as she labored faithfully uh, to bless and to support the gospel ministry, Uh, in a a wicked time in the history of your people. Even as she uh, did that, she bore uh, the silent shame of her barrenness. But you stepped in to display your grace and your power, your intention to restore not just brokenness in her life, but in our lives and in this whole creation. We thank you that you blessed her with the reverse of the curse in her life, giving her a a son, blessing her, removing the curse of her barrenness. Lord, we think of our own lives and we see that there is suffering there too, as we labor under the curse of sin. We thank you that you have not abandoned us. And very often we see glimpses of your intention to reverse the curse in our lives, to restore fruitfulness in our lives and remind us that our hope, our desire, is not for this life, but for the life to come, the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more sin. So thank you for this small reminder and this call to support gospel ministry, uh, to make all things in our lives subservient to you and to the call of your word. May your word have a prominent place in our lives as we seek to follow you and live for you and to raise our families in the fear of the Lord. Lord, bless us as we go into this coming week, as we seek to serve you with our gifts, with our talents, with our time, with our energy. May all that we offer be for your praise and your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.